0: Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully excited about the show today, as I always am. I'm excited to get things started today with Rebecca Hagstrom. She is founder and headmaster of Liberty Classical Education in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. She's a wife and mother of four, and she is really passionate. I love passion. She's passionate about empowering parents to help understand the system of education, and it's overwhelming influence on culture today Rebecca welcome
1: thank you so much for having me I'm really happy to be here
0: it's really it's a fascinating topic and I know everyone's interested so maybe we can start a little bit about how you ended up being the founder of of a school. Yeah, Come on. Sure.
1: I know it's That's crazy. It's super right? interesting. I know. I mean, when I was 25 years old in graduate school finishing my speech path- degree in speech pathology, I never in a m- million years would have imagined that I'd be starting a school. But um, sounds like God
0: was at work. Uh, yeah, yeah, this
1: is definitely a God story. Yeah, yeah. yeah from top to bottom. Um, and the way it all happened is that my oldest son started out in public schools and we were in the Stillwater School District. That's a good district. And, you know, Minnesota's known for having great schools. And so we never considered private school at that time, but quickly we realized he wasn't being challenged academically. And after a number of years of seeing that it wasn't changing, you know, talk, numerous talks with the principal and the teachers and what have you, we finally made the move to a private secular K 12 college preparatory program in Maplewood and there we found that academically speaking he was being challenged which we were happy about and we actually were at that school for nine years we loved the people um, loved the teachers but over the course of time there we realized that the values that we were trying to teach our children at home were not being supported in the school and at that point we decided we really needed to look into Christian education and so we looked at some of the Christian schools in the area But when we did, we realized that there was a gap um, between the level of education that we were receiving at the secular college prep program and then the Christian programs that we were looking at. And it was frustrating because we felt like we had to choose between raising our kids or sending them to a school that had a strong Christian worldview or sending them to a school that had no worldview, no Christian worldview, but was high academic. Mm -hmm. And we thought, gosh, as Christians, we should be putting out some of the best educated kids in the nation. That's how we earn the right to speak in this culture. It's how we get a voice, a respected voice in the culture. And so we were frustrated by that. And we decided to stay at the college preparatory school. And about a year after that, we learned of classical Christian education through an ad for Schaefer Academy in Rochester, Minnesota. And when I read the synopsis of the school, I was so excited because I could tell they understood exactly what we really wanted for our kids. It was high academic. They were integrating Christian worldview into all of their subject matter rather than just tacking it on as a Bible class or as a chapel, um, which is some of the other things that we had been seeing when we visited schools. So I called them. My husband said, "Well, maybe there's some schools like that in the Twin Cities." And when I did, they said, "No, you know, we don't think there's any schools like that in the ours in the Twin Cities, but this school is founded by six families and you can do it too."
0: <laughs> and I remember
1: <laughs> going, "Huh?" Yeah, sort of school. I never would have thought of that. Yeah. But you know, my <laughs> naivete, I wasn't intimidated even though I should have been. <laughs> right. But at the time I was just excited at the notion that, "Hey, So I went to my Bible study that week and I said to the ladies in it, I said, I think God wants us to start a school. (laughs) (laughs) And one of my friends looked at me and she just laughed and she said, only you would say that, Rebecca. But in the end, she ended up helping. And um, long story short, that was 1999. And we ended up working with a group of people that was interested in starting a school. Um, we worked for about six months straight and realized the amount of work that it was really going to be to make this happen. And long story short, I was involved in a very heavy volunteer position at our church, and so um, we decided this wasn't the time to do it. So it got put on hold for a couple of years, and then it got resurrected again when we got our 501c3 in 2001, um, or January, sorry, of 2002. And then we worked at it for another year and a half, and we opened in 2003 with 28 kids in grades K through 8. Combined classrooms, almost a completely volunteer staff, though very qualified.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and yet, within two weeks, my husband said, this program is better than anything that we have spent our money wow. on. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. It was, a,
1: And again, it was a God thing. Yeah. Completely directed by God. The timing, the people, everything. Um, I could tell you so many stories of God's miraculous hand that allowed the school to become... A school in the first place and to survive these 18 years and to thrive now yeah, yeah we're a school now of about two hundred and seventy k-12 students and about another 46 preschoolers so about 315 kids approximately and then we have about 75 staff members now so
0: Wow it's remarkable
1: yeah yeah
0: so Rebecca talk about the current state of our education our education system yeah or maybe both private and public,
1: yeah, well, you know, and i can I can kind of put a dividing line between some of the Christian schools and then the secular schools, of course, but what I do see pretty commonly between both uh public education system and the secular private schools is that they have really leaned heavily towards what we're now learning is called critical race theory. And this has been going on for a number of years, um, but it's really culminating now. And I think it's really interesting to note that this isn't just something we're seeing in a couple of schools. This is something we're seeing nationwide. And I think for the first time, in my my adult life, anyway, people of all walks of life are realizing that K-12 education is critically important because we're now seeing the results of kids who have been educated really in this manner for quite a while. If you look back at our history curriculum or social studies curriculum, it has been weak on American history, on um, prioritizing what this country was founded upon, the values that were, it was founded upon. And instead, there's been a lot more emphasis on what our founders were, what they did wrong. You know, they were slave owners. They were this, they were that. Rather than focusing on the good and recognizing that they were coming in an era that unfortunately that was an acceptable practice, but eventually the U.S. did wise up and get rid of that. So sadly what's happened is that focus on trying to stamp out racism, which while it's a worthy goal, um, it's been done at the expense of teaching what's been good about our nation. And so now we're at this place where it's really a critical time in our nation's history. And I think not just Christians, but I think Americans of all stripes are starting to realize we have to start paying attention to what's happening in our K-12 schools, because this is where we set the foundation for citizenship later, um, for what our kids are going to become when they're adults. They are the future of this nation. And so we have to be taking the educational element of what they're learning seriously. Um, So I'm concerned about where things are right now, but I'm actually really hopeful because I do think that people are starting to wake up to to stop and think, hmm, we really need to reevaluate what our kids are learning.
0: Mm-hmm. Give us an, um, a 30,000 foot view of a classical education. Yeah. It's math, science, uh, writing, reading, communicating, uh, learning how to think logically, mm-hmm. Um Maybe even learning Latin, huh? Yeah,
1: yeah it's, we, we teach I took Latin. Four, I
0: took four years of Latin.
1: You, could, yeah. you did in college? Oh, yeah. in no, co-
0: no, in high school. In high school? Yeah, one never, high school I've did you go a, to that I've I've you could I've never been take able Latin. to use it, though, because I've never been to Latin America. So
1: yeah, yeah, Well, but you use it because 65% of the English language is based in Latin. I know. You, you can't know believe
0: how many words pop right. up you, though, I know this word.
1: Right. Yeah. So yeah. you are using it. Oh, I am using it. you just not using it in the way that it was Yeah, and our kids even
0: learning to write nowadays, do yeah. they learn cursive language, how no, to write with cursive no. uh, yeah, uh, handwriting?
1: cursive is so important and that's been wiped out too. Why? So because, oh well, Except because on the big tech, big tech has made a huge inroad on education and um, while we see Education as, or while I see technology as a really important tool for adults when we're in the work world, um, it is not the ideal way to learn. And we're learning that exactly now because we're seeing so many kids having to try to learn online and we're seeing that it's not going very well. Um, but sadly in the early years of that tech, um, revolution where schools thought that the next best thing was to give every child an iPad or a, or a, um, laptop. They felt like, well, what do we need cursive for? But what they've realized or what they've forgotten and hopefully they begin to realize is that cursive writing is a really complex task. And so it's very good for brain development.
0: Yeah. Tell that to Steve Jobs. Yeah, exactly. You know? Well,
1: he's had a lot of influence.
0: Well, I mean, he, you know? he was into calligraphy.
1: Oh, I didn't know that.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah, That really? was that was his specialty was calligraphy.
1: Interesting. So talk At, about
0: a well-developed brain when it comes to yes, understanding. yeah. Um, Beauty and form and shape and everything. I did everything.
1: not know that. That does yeah, well, contribute, contribute to every his day creativity. On the
0: afternoon of the well, this is good. Just this so is good. Know. Yeah. Yeah, you're the educator, and I'm teaching you. What's yeah. This there scenario? we
1: go. There we. I was just thinking. Well, Steve Jobs is one of the people that pushed those laptops into those lower school and middle school and no, upper school no. classrooms. No, no. He
0: was kind of a, a dropout that yeah. did calligraphy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. good. That's probably why he was able to invent, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, a classical education. You asked me to kind of give that 30 foot. Yeah. You you did that well on your own and as in a, in a sense. But um, I, what I do want our listeners to know that is, is that this is the way people were educated for centuries. It dates all the way back to Greco-Roman times. And I think my parents, they are 94 and my dad sadly passed away at 95 two years ago. Um, they had Latin and logic in their K-12 public school. And nowadays, you don't see any of that in the public school. If you see it at all, it would be only an elective. And even that would be rare in a public school setting. Um, Instead, what has transformed is it's gone much more um, towards kind of a career type development um, plan for education and frankly, a social transformation. You know, education has been used by progressives really for the last 50 years or more to try to transform. Form our culture. And slowly but surely, it's kind of like the frog in the, in the pot. I don't think culture has really understood how K-12 education has been used to really shift the way we think. But education then, if you want people to learn how to think, you need to give them that full Um, broad type of education where you're going to do all the liberal arts. We know that math and music connect and Mm -hmm. physical education connects with learning. Um, We know that if we don't explicitly teach logic, how in the world are the kids going to learn what a logical argument is? Of course. Um, If we don't teach cursive writing, as I said earlier, how do we expect the kids to really understand how to put together thoughts? Because when you just do it on the computer, you don't really learn. How to connect your thoughts nicely, right? So writing is improved um, through cursive writing, but all that to say, in a classical education, the way it works is in the lower school, um, we focus on the grammar stage. And then the middle school is the logic stage. And then the upper school is the rhetoric stage. And if you want, we can talk more about that after the break. I yeah. know you're trying to take a break here. And um, I can give you a little bit more information about those.
0: That would be terrific. Rebecca Hagstrom is my guest. She is the founder and headmaster of Liberty Classical Education in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. She also co-hosts a radio show called Education Nation. That might explain why she is so good on the air. I'll take a short break. and we'll Be right back. So glad to be talking to Rebecca Hagstrom. She's the founder and headmaster of Liberty Classical Academy. I got so excited about classical education. A couple of times I called it Liberty Classical Education, which is not right. So <laughs> I'm correcting myself. Liberty Classical Academy in White Bear Lake. But it is a classical education, we're learning all about it. Rebecca, tell me more about these these three phases.
1: Yeah. So, most of your listeners are probably familiar with the term grammar schools. And that's more proof that this was the way people were educated for centuries because they're familiar. And it's the first stage of a classical education. And the reason why they're called grammar schools is because the grammar stage is in the elementary school years. And there, that is marked by kids who are developmentally speaking, they're like sponges. They can memorize information oh. very, yeah, very know. easily. Yeah. Right. I mean, and for people who are parents on on in your listenership, they are going to be able to relate to the fact that if you read your child a book a few times, pretty soon your child can read that book to you, even if they don't know how to read yet, because they've basically memorized the book and um, (laughs) same with parts from a movie and what have you. And and, you know, um, a lot of uh, advertisers use the classical method at the grammar stage, you know, jingles and songs on ads and TV, um, repetition, those are all things that are part of the grammar stage. So anyway, what you do is you, you use that to your advantage in a classical education and you give kids opportunities to learn the tools of each of the subjects through songs, chants, rhymes, sound offs, things that they don't mind repeating over and over. And in fact, they love it and they don't even really realize they're learning. And while, of course, there's still some sit-down time where they're, you know, learning to write sentences and they're doing math problems and what have you, a lot of what they're doing in the lower school years is movement up and they're up and they've got actions to those songs and chants and rhymes. So once you provide that foundation for the kids, then at the logic stage, the kids are developmentally speaking becoming much more curious and inquisitive. They want to know how, they want to know why. So that's where we introduce formal research and the kids in sixth grade Write their first research paper and they write another one all the way through 12th grade. Um, And then they get a formal logic class, they do compare contrast exercises, anything that's going to help them understand. So the focus in the middle school years during the logic phase is understanding. And then at the rhetoric stage, kids, developmentally speaking, are starting to separate from their parents, form their own opinions. Once again, we want to play off of that. So now not only do we expect them to know the tools of each subject and understand each subject, now we want them to have to analyze and synthesize the information, form their own opinions, and learn to communicate those opinions succinctly and in a way that is going to um, produce people to be convinced and respectfully and And respect is a huge piece of it's it's true and that's actually one of the things i love about a classical education especially a classical christian education like what we're doing because what we're doing then is we're combining that powerful education where they learn logic they learn rhetoric and they are also then learning what it is to love and respect others Mm -hmm. through the christian faith Wow. and so um, by the time these kids graduate they write an 18 to 20 page thesis on a controversial topic they boil it down into a 10-minute speech they give it publicly in front of a panel of judges they do a 10-minute defense of their paper and talk about being prepared for life wow. these it's like kids practical it is it yeah. is extremely practical and and we even hear from our alumni that it helps them in interviews. It helps. I mean, people notice the difference because it builds confidence. Our kids are confident and they are respectful. We hear yeah. that. And all reading, the time. writing,
0: and presenting is what you need to have to succeed in life. Period. Yeah, and no
1: matter what what uh, career you choose, no matter what career, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's
0: pretty powerful. Yeah, it is. So. Well, if you have this classical education, how are the kids faring in some of the standardized testing?
1: Extremely well. So one of the things that I do like to share is that we don't use the Minnesota Comprehensive. We've been using a nationally standardized test, the Stanford 10 achievement test, which is a well-respected national achievement test. We're actually going to be switching to a different one that is also well-respected this year. Um, But our students perform in the top 30 percent of the nation on average, and we have many classes those are our class averages. We have many classes that are performing um, even in the top 10, you know, percent of the class or of the nation. And then with the ACTs and the SATs, which are college entrance exams, um, our students are performing in the top 13 percent of the nation, wow. generally speaking. Yeah, our average, I think our class average last year was a 29 or 20, 29. I think generally it's more like around 28. Um, and the Minnesota state average is usually about 22 and a half. So it's a big gap. And so we know it works. And not only just for the test scores, but from anecdotal stories from our from our parents and our students.
0: Mm-hmm. Any counsel you could give parents who are trying to navigate all of these secular influences that their kids are getting in, in their schools?
1: Oh, I tell you, you know what, uh, I am going to be perfectly honest right now. Um, It has never been more difficult to have a child in public school, not just because they're not meeting in person on a regular basis, but because, as I said earlier, critical race theory has taken such a front and center seat. Um, I personally would say take your child and either homeschool them or send them to a private Christian school. It is worth the investment um, because I think right now there is no way to really, really insulate your children from what's happening because it's so, it's permeating everything. It's permeating the math programs. It's permeating the science programs. It's not just in social studies. It's being used in every subject critical race theory is. Wow. So if you really truly don't believe you can um, have an alternative for your child, you're going to need to spend time sitting down with them and helping them understand the values that your family believes in and why they're important and how they differ from what their children are learning. Study up on critical race theory, understand what it is yourself as an adult so that you can then help your child better navigate what they're getting at school.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And what about parents what can they do if uh, about teaching critical thinking at home?
1: Oh, at home. Well, I would start with the classics. If your children aren't reading classics at school, have them reading classics at home. And then have discussions with them. This is what we do in our upper school English classes. Of course, especially if you're if you have high school kids. I guess I'm thinking more of high school kids right now. And middle school too. Mm -hmm. Um, Lower school kids, it's a little bit harder to have discussions, but focus on the lower school. Focus on making sure they understand how to write, how to read, that's what you should be really focusing on in the lower school and of course basic math um if you're not getting that in your own child's lower school focus on that because then once they've mastered the basics then you can give them some in-depth um classical books that we read classic books at liberty in the middle school and the high school and they form wonderful fodder for discussion and then you can bring in as a parent if you're reading those books with your child you can discuss you know what are what were the goals of this author first and foremost fi- find out what the worldview of the author was and then compare that to their characters and how does it come out through their characters? How do the characters, um, how do they compare to what a Christian worldview would say? Um, So these are the things, it's really just having deep discussions with your kids that's going to form their ability to have the ability to critically think. The other thing that we did as a family. Is we talked about the current events around our dinner table. We made sure to have dinner together four times a week at least. And we often just sat around the dinner table for sometimes an hour or more afterwards, just talking about what was going on in the culture. How does it compare to what we think should be happening as a Christian family? And so, you, you know, as parents, you are the number one influencer, but you have to be intentional about being that number one influencer. so teaching them to analyze what they're seeing uh, in on the social media in the news and what's happening in our culture and comparing that to what does Christ call us to do getting them to read great classic literature literature and having great discussions those would be my b- biggest recommendations.
0: Well you, Rebecca, you heard God's call and you answered yeah well tremendous he
1: gave he gave me the strength to do that and a very supportive husband and a great team around me it would not have happened without the great team
0: yeah so just like uh, six couples starting a a school congratulations 18 years now
1: thank you uh, very much
0: Liberty Classical Academy in White Bear Lake Minnesota can I go look at a website
1: Absolutely. And it's really simple libertyclassicalacademy.org.
0: That makes it easy. Yep. Rebecca, thanks so much for being here doing the show. Thank you for having me. Rebecca Hagstrom has been my guest, founder and headmaster of Liberty Classical Academy. We'll take a short break and be right back.
1: It's the afternoon show.
0: Studying God's Word is my favorite thing to do, and one of my very favorite teachers is my friend, Dr. Greg Heddington, back with us, studying the book of John. Greg, welcome back.
2: Thanks, great to be here.
0: I think we're jumping in all the way up to chapter six, I believe.
2: That's right, we're beginning chapter six.
0: Let's get started.
2: All right, well, welcome to now the 11th lesson in our study of the Gospel of John as we look at the 6th chapter of John. Our title for this lesson is The Bread of Life, and the central idea is closeness to Christ means fullness of life. In chapter 6, we see Jesus performing two major miracles, one public and one only for his apostles' benefit. And Jesus has continued the same strategy throughout the first 11 chapters in which he performs a miracle, and then, if it's a public miracle, he gives a message regarding what that miracle reflects about him. So it's a miracle message, miracle message strategy, like show and tell, show and tell, because Jesus refuses to let people be simply entertained as if they're passively watching a magician perform. Instead, Jesus explains the bigger meaning behind the miracle that can be assimilated into their lives. So if you're taking notes, Roman number one, the big feed. Thanks to our writer, John, who keeps his readers attuned to the major Jewish festivals. We know that one of the three Passover feasts recorded in John is about to occur, and therefore scholars believe that between six months and a year have elapsed since the end of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six. So Jesus' public ministry has been active for at least two years at this point. He goes back to Galilee, his adopted home up north, and as usual, he, thousands of people are following him as he continues to perform signs and wonders, which is primarily why he's attracted such enormous crowds. After all, there is just so much excitement that can go on in smaller towns, just like smaller towns everywhere, and for the people, this is almost like the circus coming to town. So to get away from the crowds, Jesus leads his 12 apostles to a solitary place we can give them some deeper and more private teaching. But once again, Jesus sees an immense crowd heading toward him. Now, in case anyone wonders, the feeding of the 5,000 in this chapter is not to be confused with the feeding of the 4,000 listed in, in Matthew, Mark, for a number of reasons, which we don't have time to go into, but know that they are different miracles. So Jesus turns to Philip and says, where should we buy bread for all these people to eat? Now, why is Philip singled out? Well, because he's from Bethsaida, which is the closest town. So if anybody knows of any local kosher kosher deli (laughs) that might be open at this hour, because it is a Jewish crowd, it would be Philip. It was a test question because our author tells the reader that Jesus already knows what will happen. So Philip does a quick calculation and says, well, eight months of an average salary wouldn't be enough for the people to each have even a small snack. Next, Andrew, whom we will see in the gospel as the convivial people person among the 12, Andrew tells Jesus he's just met a boy, because he's out there hobnobbing, who is willing to share his lunch of five loaves and two fish. Now, the Greek word used for fish here is absurion, which means the fish are more like the size of sardines, so they're pretty small. (laughs) So, since we, as the careful reader of the gospel, are now familiar with the miracle message, miracle message strategy, which Jesus has been using, we can foresee the purpose for this public miracle, right? Jesus is about to perform a miracle, and then he will instruct both the twelve and the crowd with a sermon regarding what the miracle means to them regarding Jesus. So Jesus takes the food in hand, tells the people to sit down on the grass, gives thanks to the Father for the food. Oh, and by the way, the verb thanks in Greek is the word from which we derive our word Eucharist, which means good thanks or good grace, which is why we sometimes call the prayer before a meal grace. Then Jesus feeds the thousands who miraculously all have plenty of food to eat. Now the example for us is just as a young boy gave the gift he had to share, so we also give the Lord our gifts and talents as a form of worship and see what God does with them, no matter how insignificant We think our gift might be. Jesus then tells the apostles to gather up the leftovers so nothing is lost, and they gather up enough of the loaves to fill 12 baskets. Now, the symbol, number 12, is like the 12 tribes of Israel in the wilderness with Moses who fed the people manna from God every day. And that symbolism is not lost on these Jewish people who are thinking to themselves, this is a sign. This is a sign that was spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy. They didn't call it Deuteronomy then, but back in the in the Testament, when he said a great prophet would be sent by God. This is the one. Now, to be sure, this is one high watermark in the popularity of Jesus. No wonder this is the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels. I mean, he's just fed 5,000 men, and if you had women and children, it would probably have been between 10 and maybe 15,000 or more people. So the event spreads all over Israel. And scripture says the people wanted to take Jesus by force to make him king. Now you'd have to think that the apostles are absolutely over the moon with excitement about this. I mean, imagine them having a conversation like this. Okay, Andrew, you're the people person, so if Jesus is king, you could be minister of hospitality. And Peter, we all know how aggressive you are, so you could be head of the military force against Rome. And, but, before they get any further, Jesus tells him, we've got to leave now. You 12 get in the boat, and now because I must be by myself. This could be a dangerous situation. I'll see you later on the other side of the lake. Now, why did Jesus respond like this? Two reasons. First, this was not the right moment according to his father's schedule for this to happen. And second, people would have said they were ready to worship him, but it would have been false worship because the attitude of the crowd is something like, well, Jesus, we'll follow you and worship you if you can continue to do healings and feeding projects like you just did today. But the bottom line is that it must benefit us. So if you continue multiplying food, good. If you continue to heal people, even better. And if you have plans to overthrow the Romans, Best of all, and then we will worship and follow you as king and messiah. Well, this attitude of the people eating the bread, but always wanting more and more reminds me of the comment made by the 18th century British statesman Edmund Burke, who said, When people are looking to government for bread, at the very first scarcity of bread, they will turn and bite the hand that fed them. Of course, it makes you wonder, is that the origin of the expression, bite the hand that feeds you? Maybe so. Well, Jesus will have none of this and sends his boys away by boat. Now, we don't have time today to look at the miracle of Jesus calming the lake, but it does show that Jesus, as the Son of God, is in control of nature. So, Roman numeral two, the bread of life. The next time we see Jesus, he's teaching in the synagogue back in his new hometown of Capernaum by the lake, And he continues his teaching strategy of following up a miracle with a message about the miracle. And the miracle in this case is the feeding of the thousands from one boy's lunch. Now, Jesus gives a teaching combined with a back-and-forth discussion with his listeners. And I'm going to point out just two things about his teaching because, after all, I want to talk about what this chapter might mean for us today. So, the first point, which would be Roman numeral 2a, the work of God. The word believe is used in this gospel 54 times, which is way more than the other three gospels combined. Why does Jesus use the word so often? Because he sees so many examples of people who academically agree with certain facts about him, like many of the Jewish leaders, but they will not believe. And I want to give you the full meaning of the Greek word for believe, which is pisteu, because it's so important to know that believe is not a passive word in Scripture. It's not like agree. It means to do something. And what does believe fully mean in the Greek? Here it is. To trust. To commit to. To put your way down on. On Jesus, of course. In verse 29, the people ask, well, what must we do? What is it required of us to do the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe, which means what? To trust, to commit to to put your weight down on him whom God has sent. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't want your religious activities. I don't want you to try to earn my love. I don't want something from you, I want you. In fact, I want all of you. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever trusts, commits to, puts your weight down on me, shall never thirst. Now, it's a metaphor. Jesus says there are two kinds of food food for the body, which is necessary, but only sustains present life. And then there's the food for one's inner spirit, which is essential, and Jesus offers eternal life. Now, salvation is what God gives in response to anyone's belief. We know that. Again, our central point, closeness to Christ means fullness of life. Jesus tells him in verse 29, this is the work of God that you trust, commit to, put your weight down on him whom he has sent. And then Jesus says, I'll tell you the same thing in the simple words when I tell you this. So here's the second point, Roman numeral 2b, the will of God. So what is the will of God, Jesus? Well, verse 40, it is that everyone who trusts, commits to, puts weight down on him, will have eternal life. Now Jesus is pouring himself out for these people try to make it as clear as he can by saying the same point over and over maybe in different words, but almost exactly the same. He's saying, forget about the physical bread. I'm talking about how to live forever, and that can start now. But then it happens. Roman numeral 2C, the big misunderstanding. This is the third point I want to make regarding Jesus' teaching on the bread of life. Jesus says, one must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood in order to have eternal life, and this is when the big red light begins to flash as the people say, Now wait a minute. How can you tell us to eat your flesh and drink your blood? And they begin to grumble. And we see this word grumble several times in the New Testament. It's the Greek word gorguzo, which means to murmur, to complain, to moan, to grieve, to grouse, and it's the sound which goes through crowds when they angrily oppose a speaker. Maybe the modern counterpart would be something like booing or hissing. And Jesus responds to the question of how one can eat his flesh and drink his blood by explaining in verse 63 that one's flesh cannot produce genuine spiritual life because new life can only occur through the spirit and by the words of Jesus. Here's what he says in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And yet, even though Jesus clearly makes his point, people continue to misunderstand, possibly because of the noise of the grumbling or they just quit listening. And then in verse 66, and here's the very sad words. Quote, after this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In other words, they returned to their previous hopeless situation only because instead of giving them daily bread as Moses did in the wilderness, Jesus offers them eternal life. Now, this is not a surprise to Jesus because he knows the hearts of people, as John 2:24 says. He then turns to the 12 and asks them, do they plan to desert him? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Oh, that is so true. And at this point, Peter could not possibly have known that not all the apostles were believers, which shows how convincing Judas had been since he had blended in so well with the apostles. The preaching and teaching of the Word of God, however, always leads to a sifting of the hearts of people. And now, what does this chapter say to us? Well, let's take a break, because that'll be Roman numeral three.
0: Awesome. All right, Greg, Dr. Greg Hedington is my guest. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more of John chapter six. Greg Heddington. We're studying the Word. We're in John chapter 6. Loving this, Greg. Let's, uh, let's get back at it.
2: Okay, Bill, this is the application part, Roman numeral 3. There's three kinds of disciples. And remember that most congregations have representatives of all three. First, there are those who start well, but something or other makes them fall away. They're more accurately called former d- disciples. One of their creeds would be seen as believing. Now, some of them say, if I could just see a miracle, then I would believe. For example, after the big feat of the thousands, they say to Jesus, now what sign will you do now that we may believe? And I'm thinking, wait a minute. These are the same people who had filled up on bread, and they came from, from which came from nowhere just the day before, and now they're already asking for another miracle. But another miracle would make no difference in their belief because these are the ones who are constantly looking for the next miracle. Now, in my travels, I've been to Cuba and Central America, and I've seen several miraculous healings, but it did not strengthen my faith because I know... We pray in our time, and if God decides to heal somebody, he will do it in his time. I know he heals people. I've seen it. But whether or not he heals does not change the fact that I put my life in his hands. If someone dies, they're still in God's hands. But the point Jesus makes in Scripture is not seeing is believing, but rather believing is seen. But for these people, it was all about seeing first. So that's the first group, the former disciples. The second kind of disciple, those are the ones that abide. They remain with Jesus. They do not stop believing they will not lose their salvation because their hearts have been captivated by Jesus as Peter said in uh, uh, verse 68 Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God now friends we are all sinners we will never be anything but sinless I mean sinful clearly I don't want to get that one mixed up because we (laughs) are sinful no and a disciple of Christ no they will never give a lead a perfect life or even sharing the gospel we mess up. For instance, I work with a lot of graduate students from China who for many years in their school system have learned that the key virtue is excellence. But even the ones who happen to follow Christ in China are sometimes hesitant to share their faith with others unless it's perfectly done, unless it's excellent. Well, the fact is no one ever has a perfect response to all the all the questions. Sadly, they often hesitate to share Christ with others who and we know china desperately needs jesus but friends it's not about perfection it's about progress it's about attempting to share our faith with others while letting the holy spirit complete the work because after all it's the spirit who does the work but we don't give up we just continue to do what the lord has taught us to do and to and to share as he told us now we know peter was often conflicted with his faith and doing the right thing he might have been thinking Lord, okay, look, I've said these good things about you, and you are the Holy One, but, Lord, you you are not easy to understand or even obey. We see you chatting one day with a Samaritan woman, and you know we despise those Samaritans. And you tell people that if they tear down the temple in Jerusalem, you'll rebuild it in three days. And then you another day, you violently throw business people out of the temple Course. You talk about the importance of eating your flesh and and drinking your blood, and now people misunderstand you. Lord, your words are hard, like the baptizers. And yet, after looking around, there's no one else I've seen who speaks with such authority or has demonstrated the power of God like you. You have gripped our hearts, and no one has talked about eternal life as you have. So, Lord, there is no reason to look anywhere else. You are the Holy One of God, and we will follow you anywhere. Now, Peter's statement of faith is one of the marks of a true believer, but it has been a process for him like it is for most of us. It takes time before we're able to believe, which means what? To trust, to commit to, to put our weight down on Jesus. And we do not go to heaven on our own intellect because verse 43 says God must draw us to himself. It's a supernatural drawing. In fact, the literal Greek word of the word to draw is to drag along. Sometimes we have to be dragged along by Jesus. And we just work hard, but we do our best. Pray that it's blessed. Jesus takes care of the rest. That's a quote from Keith Green, a musician from the past. Well, no one knows, <clears throat> because it's the supernatural work of the Spirit, how somebody really comes to the Lord. So we never stop sharing the truth with others. As Jesus says in John 15:16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And we think, wait a minute. Is Jesus saying that some are elected to be his? Well, those who are believers who consider themselves to be in what's called the reformed tradition of the church would say every day is election day. You see, it's kind of a little play on the word election because we just had a political election in the U.S. And Well, it's a little Calvinistic humor, which is enjoyed <laughs> by some, but, but it's also baffling to other people. So. <laughs> well, the doctrine of both election and free will regarding salvation are mentioned in verse 37. On the one hand, the father elects, or as Jesus says, the father gives certain people to the son that they may believe. Yet on the other hand, we know that scripture also claims, whosoever will may come to Jesus. And that's free choice. So both statements are true, but seemingly contradictory. It's an example of a useful word, which is antinomy, A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. Antinomy is when we read two statements, which are both true but seem to contradict each other. Now, we've seen this before in Scripture. So does God choose us or do we choose God? The only possible answer is yes, even though it's a mystery to our finite minds because we know God is infinite, and we understand there are some things we will not understand this side of eternity. We see these two different ideas of free will and election as two strands, They'll run side by side like two parallel lanes of a, in a highway. So we're encouraged when Jesus says in 37, whosoever comes to me, I'll never refuse. Okay, the third kind of disciple. These are the false disciples who never fully commit. They will not give up control of their lives to Jesus, and they're very difficult to spot because they use the correct words and they like to hang out with believers because they, quote, appreciate the truth, but they do not appropriate the truth. It's just academic to them. They are confusing for Christ followers because in Jesus' time, they're around Jesus and 12 all the time to enjoy the miracles. And they're confusing to us because they hang around believers because believers are usually nice people. Now, one of the obvious best examples of false discipleship was Judas Iscariot, which we know later betrayed Jesus. By the way, Iscariot means man from Kirioth, which is nearest south of Judah. So one of the things that is outwardly different about Judas from the other disciples is he has a different kind of an accent. But otherwise, they can't tell. The false disciple will learn, hopefully, that he or she cannot stand with one foot on what they think is self-preservation while the other foot stands close to the truth of Christ. Jesus does not give us the option to embrace both worlds. Or, as a great man once said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. That man was C.S. Lewis. Now, in conclusion, there are former and false prophet, excuse me, disciples in most congregations. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 7 1. He says, do not judge lest you be judged. Now, that verse is often misunderstood because Scripture tells us we are to discern when others are telling us to go the wrong way. But the Greek word for judge, which Jesus uses, means literally to say the last word. In other words, we cannot write the last page of anyone's life as if we know how they're going to turn out. We do not know what God is going to ultimately do in anyone's life, even though for them it may be two outs, two strikes, the bottom of the ninth. And this chapter challenges us to renew our commitment to Christ every day because we do not naturally drift toward holiness. Instead, we we naturally drift toward compromise with the world around us. Therefore, daily we search our hearts to choose whom we will serve, to be certain that we are the kind of disciple who is captivated by the Lord and we hold on to his truth. And again, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. And as our central idea for this lesson states, closeness to Christ means fullness of life. And now that we and every disciple falls into one of the three groups, we do have a question. So the question for us today is, in which group do we belong? Former disciples, false disciples, or true disciples? Bill, that's, that's my thoughts for the day.
0: I love it, Greg, and I love that you always give us an encouragement and a challenge at the end, because every one of your messages always points directly to Christ and asks that, that riveting question, uh, who do you say Jesus is? And as oh, we go through this, this has just been amazing um, to study the book of John in this way and to have so much amazing teaching. So thank you so much for that.
2: My pleasure, Bill. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, it's always uh, it's always good to uh, fellowship with you, and it's always good to uh, study God's Word. So thank you very much. I know our listeners are loving this, and I know that there's... Um, a lot of people that, you know, are seeing the book of John in, in a fresh way, just because the Word of God is alive and, sh- you know, double-edged sword, and it, it reveals new things to you every time you open it.
2: Amen. It does to me.
0: Yeah, me too. So thank you so much, Greg, and I well, will look forward to uh, next time. I think we're going to be in John 7. You bet. All right. Thanks so much, and have a great day. Thank you. You bet. Dr. Greg Heddington has been our guest as we study the book of John. That was lesson number 11, so we've got uh, many more to go as we go through the book of John. Have a great night, and God bless. I'll see you tomorrow.